Jesus here once again rebukes and rejects the Pharisaic approach to righteousness. Their way was arrogant and hypocritical. It has the appearance of righteousness, but was really motivated by greed and selfishness. The example provided appears to have to do with a person who will not sell a piece of property to support an aging mother and father. To avoid the appearance of greed, he declares the property korban, that is dedicated to God. The idea being that it will be left to the temple upon his death. Thus, he gets to enjoy the property now while his poor parents suffer. He looks righteous when in fact he has disobeyed God. This, in Jesus' view, is the root problem with the Pharisaic approach to righteousness. They leverage their traditions so as to open loopholes and escape hatches in the clear word of God. They want to look obedient, but they don't actually respect and love the heart and intention of the law. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. It has always been a temptation for religious people to elevate man-made traditions above the clear teaching of the Word of God. The Pharisees were doing it in their day, and it remains a danger to those of us trying to follow the Lord in our day as well. But thanks be to God, Jesus offers us a much better way. And here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 15. In chapter 14, we began a section that runs through to the end of chapter 18 and the first two verses of chapter 19, which we titled Progressive Polarization. You can see Judaism beginning to split and splinter under the pressure of Jesus' teaching and claims. Here in this chapter, we encounter one of the main dividing issues, the claim of Jesus to be the authoritative interpreter of the law. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, now let's just pause here briefly. This appears to be an official delegation sent from Jerusalem to investigate the teaching and claims of Jesus. The Jerusalem authorities are concerned with the reports they've been receiving as to Jesus' approach to the law. This encounter is very important in terms of our understanding of one of Matthew's major themes, which is the function of the law. This is one of the critical dividing points between Jesus and the Pharisees, and ultimately between Christianity and Judaism. An argument can be made that only two strains of Judaism survived the catastrophe of A.D. 70, the Pharisaic strand, which became Rabbinic Judaism, and Christianity. The temple is no more, and therefore the Sadducees are no more, and we hear virtually nothing more of the Sadducees, and we hear nothing more of the Essenes after A.D. 70. Judaism is fracturing. You can see that in this story, and only two groups are going to survive, those following Jesus and those following the Pharisees or the rabbis. And one of the most important dividing issues between those two groups has to do with the role and function and correct understanding of the Old Testament law. Commentator Michael Green puts it this way, The main point of controversy was this. The Pharisees had developed a whole fence of traditions and additions to protect the law. They regarded their modifications, the tradition of the elders or the oral law, 
as of equal value to the Torah, since they claimed that both the written and the oral law derived from Moses on Mount Sinai, closed quote. So the Pharisees believed that Scripture was authoritative and they also believed that their interpretive traditions were authoritative. And sometimes, Jesus contended, their interpretations were actually contrary to the clear intention of the Bible. And whenever such a conflict emerged, they always sided with their own traditions. Jesus, on the other hand, said that he knew what the Scriptures originally intended and that his life, ministry, and teaching was, in fact, the ultimate fulfillment of everything written and prophesied therein. That's a a bold claim, and it created a serious crisis within first century Judaism. And we are watching that crisis unfold in these encounters. So a group of Pharisees has been sent as an official delegation from Jerusalem, and this is what they said to Jesus when they came to him. Verse 2, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, notice the problem. The Pharisees understand the tradition of the elders as being essentially equal in authority to the law. This refers to the oral tradition that was later codified in the 2nd and 3rd centuries into what became known as the Mishnah. So, they aren't accusing the disciples of breaking the law. There is no commandment in the Bible specifying how a person ought to wash their hands when they eat. That was an oral tradition. So, this is a scenario that brings us to the heart of the essential conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Verse 3, he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus here, in responding to the Pharisees, makes a sharp distinction between the commandments of God and human traditions. The commandments of God are to be considered authoritative, but not the traditions of men. Jesus here, once again, rebukes and rejects the Pharisaic approach to righteousness. Their way was arrogant and hypocritical. It has the appearance of righteousness, but was really motivated by greed and selfishness. The example provided appears to have to do with a person who will not sell a piece of property to support an aging mother and father. To avoid the appearance of greed, he declares the property korban, that is dedicated to God. The idea being that it will be left to the temple upon his death. Thus, he gets to enjoy the property now while his poor parents suffer. He looks righteous when in fact, He has disobeyed God. This, in Jesus' view, is the root problem with the Pharisaic approach to righteousness. They leverage their traditions so as to open loopholes and escape hatches in the clear word of God. They want to look obedient, but they don't actually respect and love the heart and intention of the law. Verse 10, And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, 
but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Here, Jesus explicitly rejects the Pharisaic movement and refers to them as blind guides to the blind. If you follow their way, you will end up in the pit. Their way is not the way of the kingdom. Verse 15. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. In this discourse about food laws and purity concerns, Jesus seems to be saying that such things were prophetic and preparatory in nature and do not deal in the real issues of righteousness and holiness before God. Indeed, in Mark's gospel, there's an editorial comment here. Immediately following Mark's version of the same encounter, Mark says in Mark 7, verse 19, thus he declared all foods clean. So Mark, obviously reporting Peter's understanding shortly before his death, says that this story and this teaching by Jesus effectively annulled the Old Testament food and ritual purity laws. Matthew does not include any such comment, but that doesn't mean that he didn't share Peter's interpretation. R.T. France is here. The principles set out by Jesus' words in verse 11 and 17 to 20 made the ultimate abandonment of the Old Testament food laws by the church inevitable. Closed quote. So in the Jesus movement, the understanding developed that Jesus was the one who truly understood the original intent of the law. And clearly, he understood the intent of the food and purity laws to have been educative and provisional. And that quickly became the orthodox approach to all such matters in the early church. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here because I feel like this is a really important passage for understanding how our Bibles go together. Sometimes unbelievers will accuse Christians of being inconsistent because on one hand, we still believe in what the Old Testament says about human sexuality, but on the other hand, we don't necessarily feel bound by what the Bible says about things like pork products, shellfish, or polyester pants. So could you help us understand why that is? Why are some parts of the Old Testament no longer in effect for the Christian, whereas other parts clearly are? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's one that comes up all the time, particularly when trying to evangelize people who know the culture really well, but who only know the Bible in terms of what they've heard other people say about it on the internet. Look, there are definitely things that change as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, so your friend isn't wrong about that. The question is what changes and why? Christians have long understood that the moral law of God is eternal and unchanging. In fact, the moral law of God is older than the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is just one particular expression of the eternal law of God. Okay, wow. I, I think you lost me there. Like, what is the eternal law of God? Um, where is that found, and 
How is that different from the Mosaic Law, which I assume we're talking about the Ten Commandments? Yeah, the terminology uh, can get a little complicated here. But when I say eternal law, I am referring to the implications associated with the eternal, unchanging character of the three times holy God. God is and always has been faithful. So all forms of unfaithfulness are incompatible with his character. That makes adultery a sin long before the giving of the Ten Commandments. God is the author of all life, and he is sovereign over all life and death, so that makes murder a sin long before the giving of the Ten Commandments. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it, it, it does make sense. And you knew this even before we started talking about it by using all these fancy terms, right? Think, <laughs> th- think of it this way. Was it a sin for Cain to kill his brother Abel? Yes or no? Uh, yes, it was definitely a sin because God came and rebuked him for it. And Cain knew that it was bad and it was a sin because he tried to hide the body. Exactly right. But that story is told in Genesis 4. And we don't actually get the Ten Commandments for like another 60 chapters or so, which makes the point that the eternal law of God comes before and exists after the Mosaic Covenant, which was given at a certain point in history for a certain period of history. So the moral law is unchanged. The moral law will never change. It will always be wrong to worship other gods than God. It will always be wrong to steal. It will always be wrong to kill. It will always be wrong to commit adultery. Okay, so why isn't it always wrong to eat a hot dog? And listen, don't get me wrong. I love me some hot dogs. Looney hot dog night at the Rogers Center is right up my alley. But I'm trying to figure out why Looney hot dog night is not a sin, But adultery and homosexuality are sins, according to the Bible. Yeah, that takes us right to the heart of the matter. According to the Bible, and according to Jesus, who is presenting himself here as the authoritative interpreter of the Bible, some things in the Old Testament were given as signs, temporary signs, whose function is fulfilled once the thing or the person they were pointing toward has arrived. So they were temporary as opposed to eternal Jesus is saying that the food laws fall into that category. And as we read the New Testament, it becomes very clear that the same can be said about the entire ritual law in the Old Testament. It was all a sign. God was teaching the people of Israel the basics of worship and religious life through these elementary forms. The food laws were like a kindergarten-level way of communicating that what we touch affects us. What we come into close contact with has an influence on the way we think and the way we feel. So as God's people, we must learn to make distinctions. That was the purpose of the food laws. But now Jesus is here and he is our teacher. So we can put the coloring books and the Play-Doh away (laughs) and just listen to him. He's taken us to the next level. And that's what we see him doing in this passage. We see him positioning himself as the authoritative teacher and retiring, as it were, previous means and forms. Okay, so to bring this in for a landing, the religious system of the Old Testament has been surpassed or replaced by Christ, but the moral essence is still the same. Yeah, and that's actually a very good way of saying it. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our prophet. Jesus is our temple, and Jesus is our teacher. And yet nothing has changed in terms of what is holy, what is good, and what is loving. But now we are receiving guidance and instruction on those things through Christ and through his spirit, as opposed to receiving it through the means and forms associated with the old covenant. So 
Hot dogs are good now. <laughs> I take mine with mustard and relish, by the way. Okay. But adultery is still bad. Right. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, you can go out tonight for lobster and clams, but you need to make sure that you go out with your wife and not someone else's wife. All right. <laughs> Got it. That's definitely good counsel. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. This movement appears to be a response to the official interest of the Jerusalem delegation. Jesus is controlling the timetable, and he is not yet ready for a final showdown with the leaders in Jerusalem, so he retreats into Gentile territory, about 80 kilometers north of Galilee. Verse 22, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. The key line in the story is, O woman, great is your faith. William Hendrickson says helpfully here, The great contrast between the unbelief of the Jews and the faith of this woman, born a Gentile, stands out. Closed quote. The story also serves to remind us of Jesus' own sense of mission. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Salvation in the Bible is to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Romans 1.16. The Jews were given the first opportunity to embrace their Messiah. The surprise, then, is how few there were who did so. The Apostle Paul addresses this mystery at length in Romans chapter 9-11. through 11. It also serves to remind us that Jesus went north into Gentile territory, not so as to minister to the Gentiles, but so as to avoid the opposition of the Jews. Nevertheless, as always, Jesus is compassionate and responsive to human need. Jesus always knew his purpose, but he was ever characterized by pity, and so must we be. Verse 29, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Of course, we should be careful to notice that this is all still happening inside Gentile territory. And all the people Jesus is dealing with here are, therefore, Gentiles, as the last part of verse 31 makes very clear. And they glorified the God of Israel. Only Gentiles would say that. So again, the point is that even though the purpose of the trip was to avoid the hostility of the Jewish leaders and to build into the 12 disciples, nevertheless, Jesus was responsive to the needs of the Gentile crowd. His mercy overflows the banks. Thanks be to God. Verse 32. 
Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them, and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were four thousand men, beside women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Now, some liberal scholars consider this to be a doublet that is a second telling of an event that only actually happened once. But there is no compelling reason to think that. Rather, it seems that this was a Gentile version of the feeding of the 5,000. The failure of the disciples to anticipate it relates to their understanding of what the original miracle signified. They saw the feeding of the 5,000 as a prophetic anticipation of the great messianic banquet foretold in the prophet Isaiah, and they did not foresee the inclusion of the Gentiles in that banquet. Therefore, they did not anticipate Jesus dealing with the Gentile crowd in the same way he had previously dealt with a crowd of Jews. If the 12 baskets of remainders from the first miracle represented the 12 tribes of Israel, then these seven baskets likely represent the fullness of the Gentiles. Even though at this point in the story, many Jewish people are resisting him, the Gentiles appear very eager to accept him. Matthew is very interested in this unexpected development. And indeed, it is one of the major themes of the New Testament. It is a mystery. It is strange providence. But as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 11, it will bring mercy and it will result in glory. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I want to go back to something you were talking about there near the end of the program audio. You said that feeding the 4,000 was kind of a Gentile repeat of feeding of the 5,000, which definitely explains why the disciples were so surprised by it. I've often wondered about that, though, because if Jesus can feed 5,000, why in the world would they be so surprised when he feeds 4,000? Yeah, exactly. The surprise was because he did this miracle for a crowd that was largely made up of Gentiles. So how long did it take for the disciples to finally realize that the church was going to be made up not just of Jews, but of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth? Well, you can watch that realization dawning on them slowly over the course of the book of Acts. You see it, of course, in the vision that Peter has in Acts 10 with the unclean animals on the sheet coming down out of heaven. At first, Peter refuses to eat what is being offered to him because some of the things on the sheet weren't kosher. Yeah, I, I love this passage, okay? Only Peter would dare to contradict a voice giving him instructions from heaven. <laughs> By no means, Lord, I only eat kosher. Yeah, that's classic Peter. <laughs> But, of course, the sheet keeps coming, right? And the voice keeps speaking. And finally, Peter understands. He is being told that the food laws need to be put aside now. They, they served a purpose, but that purpose has been fulfilled in Christ. And the food laws are going to get in the way of the mission to the Gentiles. 
That's the real point of the passage. And Peter gets it. When the messengers from Cornelius, the Gentile, arrive at his door, he understands that he is to get up and to go to his house and and to not ask any questions about the food that he may be served while he is there. The canceling of the food laws becomes a symbol of the door being opened wide to Gentile mission. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul runs right through that door in a big way, right? Yeah, and and you can see the early church wrestling with that in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. So, as I said, it took them a while, but by the midway point of the book of Acts, they're definitely there. Well, praise God for that. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 